Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, a place where we rescue great British soldiers and their deeds from the dustbin of history. Please subscribe and leave a review as it really helps others to find us. My goal is for these stories to once again become mainstream and to bring them to a new generation. Today is the third instalment of my series examining the life of General Sir Hugh Gough, one of the preeminent men of British military history of the Victorian era. Historian Chris Bryce joins me on the show again and explains Gough's performance during the first opium war in China, an interesting war that, full disclosure, I currently know absolutely nothing about. Luckily though, Chris does, as he's written a book on Gough called Brave as a Lion, which can be purchased from helion.co.uk. Listeners of this show will also receive a 20% discount by putting in the code LION2020 at checkout. That's L-I-O-N 2020, all uppercase. Chris started our chat today by explaining Goff's return to service in 1837 after a number of years on half pay. Well, I mean, he's, he's obviously, it's much of a, a shock to, to Goff as to anyone else that after 11 years, he's suddenly given an appointment. Um, it's also rather strange in some senses because he's given the Mysore division of the Madras army. Um, and really at this stage, the Madras army is probably the least active of the three presidency armies in India. So you have Bengal, Bombay and Madras. Madras, in terms of the area, is probably the most peaceful, the safest, so there's not a lot for the Madras army to do. Um, So it's a strange appointment in some senses. As I've mentioned in in the previous interview, there are periods of Goth's life where the trail just goes completely cold and we have no correspondence, we know very little about it. Uh, And his time actually commanding the Madras, uh, the division in the Madras army is something we don't know a lot about. We really sort of, so from late 37, we don't really pick him up again until sort of late 1840. There are little bits, but not a lot. Um, In 1840, he's offered command of uh, British uh, forces in the First Anglo-China War. Um, Now, I'm sure very much the fact that he's got a good fighting reputation from the peninsula uh, plays an important part in this. And maybe, again, the fact that uh, he had, in some senses, had wider responsibility during the Ruckite Rebellion, perhaps, again, added something to his, you know, his reputation and his his um, suitability for the command as far as the authorities in India were concerned. Um, now, the First Anglo-China War is one of those conflicts that... Um, very sadly misunderstood, misinterpreted. Um, There's been a lot of uh, poor work done on this to to rather turn it into something that it's not. Um, The other name for it is the Opium War. Um, And there is very much a case in which, you know, opium plays an important part. Uh, But it would be wrong to say that the campaign is purely about opium. Now, 
obviously in the, in the time we've got here, I haven't really got time to go into a lot of detail um, about this sort of conflict. But one thing I think is very important, um, if anyone wants to know more about the, the opium wars, um, particularly the political side, and, and just to understand China and Chinese history, um, I'd highly recommend Professor Julia Lovell's book, uh, The Opium War. It is an absolutely excellent book. It really is. Um, it's fantastic. It's one of the best history books I've ever read. I really have to say that. Uh, and the detail in there and the understanding of the Chinese mind and the Chinese mindset uh, is, is brilliant. And one of the things that's important that comes out of this is that there's some of the myths of the Opium Wars, First Anglo-China War, are debunked and proved to be false. Um, for example, you always get this... Pardon? What sort of thing? Well, there's always this sense, if you read a lot of the more modern histories of the First Anglo-China War, you would be forgiven for believing, and in fact, in some cases, people do deliberately say this, that the British introduced opium to China. Complete and utter nonsense. Opium had been used since the 8th century in China. Uh, recreational use of opium dates from maybe about 100 years after that. Um, one, of, one of the bizarre things that you know, uh, Julia Lovell mentions in her book is that the emperor during this period, who is clamping down on uh, the opium trade, rather than opium use, is himself a recreational user of opium. Um, you know, there's, there's something to, to, that needs to be understood in that the British did not introduce opium. Opium was already there. Now, when the British start bringing in opium from India through the East India Company, at first, it's greatly welcomed because opium is rather scarce in China. It's very expensive. Um, it's an elitist drug in that sense, um, which has both medical, it is, you know, used for medical, there are various, and there are various mythical medical uh, uses for it as well, you know, people think it does something um, that it doesn't, I mean, the, the, the well known one is that uh, it becomes popular as a, uh, as a cure for male impotency, um, you know, so there are all sorts of strange uses for opium. But also better than rhino horn, to be fair. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. But, you know, there are some strange uses and some, some real medical uses for that, but there's also the recreational use. Yeah. Now, the British bring in opium, which is cheaper and of very high quality. Um, the Americans are also bringing in opium to China, uh, which they're buying from the Ottoman Empire, um, but it's of poorer quality. So the American role, there is an American role in the opium trade, but it's a much smaller one, simply because of the quality of the product. Um, at first, the British are really sort of welcomed with this, this opium. Um, it's only really when it starts to affect the, the balance of trade quite dramatically. Um, trade with China has seen uh, silver, which is the main currency, flowing into China at an enormous rate. Once the opium trade starts and there's this huge demand for it, you see silver going the other way and China is quickly running out of silver. It's quickly, in effect, running out of currency. 
Um, and that's really, more than anything else, why we get the, uh, the ban on the trade. And let's be clear, it's a ban on opium trading. It's never a ban on opium. Uh, it's never a ban on opium use, really. There is a period where one of the commissioners tries to ban the use of opium. But he can only go so far when, as I explained, the emperor is himself an opium user, uh, as were many of the court. And what year are we talking here, Chris? Where are we up to now? Well, we're into uh, 18, 1840, 1841 is where it really starts to kick off. Uh, Goff doesn't appear in China until I think it's very early 1841. It's about March 1841 he turns up. He actually sails. It, it's an incredibly long journey when you think he's only going from Madras. He sails in late December. 1840 and he doesn't turn up to early March. Um, now, obviously, you know, the, the wind plays a serious part in this and, and it, it was quite often unreliable in that, uh, that, uh, that area. Um, so Goff's really there to add new impetus to the campaign. So um, what had happened up until that point, Chris? Had there been some fighting already? There had been, but but not in any significant um, way. Uh, in fact, the adjutant general had said something along the lines of, you know, up to the point where Goff arrived, we'd just been playing at war. Um, you know, and one of the th first things Goff does is consolidate his force because he intends to go on the offensive. Um, the previous commanders had rather sort of parceled out the force for various garrisons, various areas. There were sensible reasons for doing that, but if you're going to attack, you need your men together, and he starts bringing the force together. Um, one of the reasons, he, or one of the conditions of him receiving the appointment was that he didn't ask for any additional troop strength, and he agrees to that. But when he gets there, he does ask for additional troops on the pretext or the reason that um, he'd been promised a force of 4,000 troops. Now, by the time he arrives there, there's a lot of who have died of disease. Disease and illness were rife during this period. And uh, he barely has, I don't, in fact, I don't even think he has 3,000 men. So he does ask Take for... the might of China. That seems a rather inconsequential yeah. force. Yes, and he gets an additional uh, British regiment, the 55th, I believe, and a battalion of Madras native infantry as well. Um, I mean, that's interesting. You know, you mentioned that the might of, of, uh, of China. There's a great discrepancy between the forces, despite the numerical superiority of the Chinese, the British are, in military terms, are at least two generations ahead, in some cases even more than that. Um, the Chinese have firearms, the Chinese have artillery, yes, but it's so far behind the British. Um, and in many cases, they are still relying on bows and arrows and spears and things like that. Um, they do have modern, well, no, they don't have modern firearms, they have firearms, but they're, they're so far behind what the British have. Now, there's also in you see, in a sense, the introduction and the use of the latest technology. 
for example, one of the, the things that's remembered perhaps most from the First Opium War is uh, the ship Nemesis, uh, who is, which is a paddle steamer, um, one of the early ones, and it has a very shallow draft. Uh, it mounts uh, two pivoted 32-pounders, I think four six-pounders, and also has a rocket launcher as well. Um, this is capable of going up the, um, the estuaries, very shallow draft, as I say, and has the ability not only to get there, but to get out under its own steam, literally. Um, you know, it's not reliant on being towed into position or anything like that. And the use of steamers are, are quite prevalent during this campaign. A number of times they're used to pull the big battleships into position where they can fire. So the battleships don't have to rely on the wind to get them into the position. The steamers, the togs, in effect, can pull them into position and then they can fire their, you know, their broadside uh, with quite deadly and dramatic effect. So you get that sense of, of, of technology. But there's also this one interesting little thing from the, the purely land forces side. Some of the troops have been uh, sent out with the latest musket with uh, percussion caps, percussion locks, if you want to be technically accurate, I suppose, um, which is a great advantage. It's a form of mercury used to ignite um, the musket. So you're no longer reliant on keeping powder dry. You're no longer reliant on a flint lighting the, the gunpowder. You have this chemical reaction that when it slams in, it starts the reaction that fires the bullet um, or the projectile. And you get, you get some uses during the campaign where that is it's not only used effectively, but Significantly, there's one occasion where um, Royal Marines with percussion caps are able to come to the rescue of troops who have basically been surrounded. And because it's heavy rain, they're not able to fire their, their muskets. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're fighting off the enemy numerically superior just with, with bayonets, basically. Until the Royal Marines come up with their percussion caps and they're still able to fire and they drive off the Chinese. So there's a technological sense in which the British are so far ahead of the Chinese during this period. Now, the Chinese have this rather, well, I suppose deluded is, is perhaps as good a word as any, view of the world. Uh, the emperor of the Chinese is supreme. And in the Chinese mindset, all other states around the world are vassals of the Chinese emperor. So Britain and Queen Victoria are vassals of the Chinese empire in their way of thinking. Sounds like not much has changed. No, Sorry, no exactly. <laughs> Although there's perhaps a bit more justification for it today. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's this mindset that uh, they are culturally and morally superior to everyone um, and this is a big problem and this is actually in, in some senses this is one of the key elements of the conflict in that they don't want to uh, sort of trade with anyone 
on equal terms. Now, it's interesting that after the conflict, we get the first of what they call the unequal treaties, where you know, they're far more favorable to the European power than they are to China. But really, at the start of this, all really the, the British are after are equal trade rights. At this moment in time, when, when the conflict starts, the only port any non-Chinese trader can use is Macau. So all trade has to be done through Macau. Um, and even then, it's licensed. So the British are rather kept out of, of China in many senses. And really... It, it sounds a bit sort of melodramatic to say it, but it's really just about free trade to a large extent. Um, it's a bit more than that, obviously. But there's a famous quote by um, John Quincy Adams, uh, former president of the United States. Um, and I'll, I'll just read you a little bit of it. Um, it says, uh, basically said, it is, it is a general, but I believe altogether mistaken opinion that the quarrel is merely for certain chests of opium imported by British merchants into China. And just to go on a little bit further, this is a mere incident to the dispute, no more the cause of the war than the throwing overboard of tea in Boston Harbor was the cause of the North American Revolution. And so there is this sense in that, you know, opium's a part of it, but it's a much wider story. It's also a sense as well, a clash of two arrogant empires. Um, you know, the, the British not being able to believe that the Chinese can act in such a way. Um, there's a famous trade mission. I'll just tell you this briefly because it, it does show the, the sort of British arrogance. There's a British trade mission to China and they take over all these wonders of modern technology, etc. Um, and I don't think they really understand who they're dealing with because they try to impress the Chinese with matches. <laughs> the People Chinese, had, of course, had had rockets for centuries, right? And the Chinese invented matches and had been using them for centuries. So there's this, and actually, the interesting thing is the only thing the British take over that um, the Chinese are in any way interested in is the Wedgwood pottery. Um, and I think that, again, says, tells you something about the Chinese empire in that their, their mindset is more cultural yeah. um, than, than, I suppose, in terms of a general sort of power. They believe in a cultural power. The Chinese, and again, anyone who wants to understand more about this, read Julia uh, Lovell's book. The Chinese have a very different interpretation of power to the Western mindset. Um, the idea of the sort of like, um, and we see it today to an extent as well, this idea of an empire of influence is more what China is thinking of than a physical empire. You know, you'll know in your part of the world, there's huge Chinese investment in yes. Africa. But, uh, and, and this is as one, one um, uh, Zimbabwean friend of mine said to me a little while back, he said the very great difference is that the Chinese are building uh, infrastructure, but to take everything out of the country. They're not building infrastructure to live there like the British did or like the Boers did. They're building infrastructure to take things out of the country. So there's this very different mindset with the Chinese that you know, is, is, is something that needs to be understood. 
And again, well, it's, it's very it's a very interesting kind of clash of cultures. And it's interesting yeah. to hear from you how some of the things we still see happening around the world now can trace their roots back a long time. You know, these are these are clashes that have been going on for centuries, it seems. Yes. And again, I, I know I keep plugging it, but uh, Julia Lavelle's book. It, it, <laughs> She's going to uh, love it, you. You're, you're her new yeah. favorite. <laughs> well, and, and it really is an excellent book. And it's interesting. I'm, I might. I might have this wrong, and I apologise if I if I do. When David Cameron was the British Prime Minister, uh, his first visit to China, he committed a, a series of, of faux pas and didn't quite understand the Chinese mindset. It's my understanding that before his second visit, he had or his officials had serious consultation uh, with Professor Lovell. Um, now, if I'm if I've got that wrong, then I apologise. That's that's what I've I've been told, and that's what I understand. Um, so you know, she really does have a, a a handle on the on the Chinese mindset. Um, I mean, if you're looking at that book, it, it's excellent in terms of the politics, etc. The military side of it perhaps isn't quite as good, but that isn't her her uh, expertise. Uh, there are better books on 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 the military side. Um, Mark Simner's uh, book is very good the um oh the, the dragon and the lion i think it's called or something like that which is which is a very good military history yeah. of, of the campaign um but yeah you know trying to understand the chinese wars um it's far more than opium uh it's far more than just trade it's more about the mindset and the fact that uh the British aren't prepared to just let the Chinese dictate to them. There's a very strong element of that. And part of, you know, obviously Gough's period in command, he actually starts taking the fight to them. Um, he's the first of that sort of change of leadership. The uh, Her Majesty's plenipotentiary um, Elliot is replaced by the, uh, Sir Henry Pottinger. Um, and Pottinger sort of takes on a more dynamic role as well. Um, you also get a, a new, uh, you had Commodore, Commodore Bremer uh, commanding the naval forces. We, we then get Rear Admiral Sir William Parker, who again is a far more dynamic leader and works extremely well with Gough. The two men are, are an excellent partnership. Um, and so you get a more offensive campaign and one of the things, I mean, I won't go into detailed battles or, or you know, anything like that, but one thing that I think is very important to stress about Gough from the Chinese wars is that you see a very different commander to the one you see from the Anglo-Sikh wars. And we can talk about that a bit later when we go into the Anglo-Sikh wars, but there's a great use of flanking movements. All right, he's helped by the Navy, the, 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 both in terms of flanking movements, sound logistics, and also in, in artillery, you know, he has that great naval presence there, um, which is a huge help. Um, he's also got an excellent adjutant general um, during this period, uh, the wonderfully named Armin Mountain, um, who is, an, is a really good uh, logistical commander. I think he later became adjutant general for India. Um, excellent officer. Wrote a very good book actually um, about his his time in China and in India. Um, he's a he's a great help to to Gough during this period. Um, but there's also there are elements like he he uses 
his use of skirmishes in fighting uh, battles, something that he doesn't use particularly well in the Anglo Sikh Wars. Um, he even goes so far at one stage during the China campaign to actually raise a special, um, well, expand a special uh, rifle skirmishing unit. Um, what exactly they're armed with is a matter of some debate. Um, the likelihood is they've still got the old um, Baker rifle. There's a possibility some of them might have the new Brunswick rifle, which was the successor to the Baker. Um, but this is an interesting unit because, just briefly to explain, this is formed from the Madras uh, Native Infantry Battalion's company of rifles, because at this stage, every uh, battalion of Madras infantry has its own rifle company. So Goff uses this as the basis, but he then brings in men from other places to keep this company at just a little over 100 men. And it might be that rare, th and from some of what I've read, I think it is, it might be that rare thing, which is a mixed race unit. There are Europeans and natives serving side by side in the same company. It doesn't happen very often during so this Goff, period. So Goff was quite open-minded then, it seems. He wasn't a sort of stickler I, for, for old school uh, ways see, of doing this things. Is the thing. I think Goff in some senses was actually... When it came to military matters like this, in terms of fighting, it was actually quite practical. Um, and if he thought that was the, the best thing to do... Just a helicopter going over there, by the way. Every, oh, everyday right. thing over my house. <laughs> Hopefully there's no uh, carjackers outside the house. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's a bit of a strange uh, situation when we're talking about this period because you would be forgiven to for thinking that this is a completely different golf to the one who f fights the anglo sequels um because he's hugely successful yes there is one big key difference which we'll talk about when when we go to the anglo sequels um but he's hugely successful uh they start you know they 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 attack various cities um partly on golf's prompting um, you know, they've taken Canton, Amoy, Chusan, uh, Shanghai, Ningpo. Um, they keep going on and on with it, with sort of attacks. But Goff is actually one of the driving forces saying, no, if we want to get the Chinese to come to the table, we've got to take the war straight to them. And so they start heading basically for Nanking. Um, and they're going to take the war right into the heart of the was Nanking the capital at that point? I don't know that it was technically. Do you know? I don't know. I don't know that it was but technically it was a key, the capital. A key but it was a, a key. key it was a key uh, city, um, and it was an important uh, imperial city. You take Nanking, the emperor's going to sit up and take notice. And it was basically. It was finally when they they were outside Nanking. That the emperor, who's never really, you see this through his correspondence, he's never really understood what this conflict's about. He doesn't get any, he doesn't have any idea about it. Even when they're talking the, uh, the Treaty of Nanking, um, he still is asking questions that you think, good grief, you should have known this by now. He's asking, why are there Indians serving in the British army? Uh, 
why am I getting letters from India when I'm fighting the British? You know, things like that. He doesn't under, I mean, he literally does not understand the world outside his doorstep, I think. Yeah. Um, he's been lied to as well, consistently by his officials who daren't tell him the truth of what's really going on. I mean, if you believe the casualty returns that come from the Chinese that they give to the emperor, uh, you know, the, the British have lost huge numbers. They've lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of men over this campaign, where in fact they haven't lost anywhere near that number. Um, and it's the Chinese who have been massacred. Um, they're telling, I mean, they're telling people at various stages, the emperor is told that uh, the former Commodore Bremner, uh, who's gone back to, 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 to India, um, they're telling that he's been killed. That's why he's no longer around because we've killed him. Well, lived on until the 1860s, I think. So, you know, and there's all sorts of things like that where they say so-and-so has been killed. I mean, at one point, they say the, the British Foreign Secretary has been killed in battle, uh, who's happily sitting in London. You know, it, it, there's this just deluded state where they're trying to keep the, in the Emperor's good book because they don't want to tell him the bad news, which is that they just cannot match this British advance in terms of technology. Yeah. And so Goff then, he'd taken over, he'd brought this new sort of thrusting offensive strategy, you know, good use of skirmishers and riflemen. And what was the end game? What, what, what was he able to achieve and how did he bring the war to a close? Well, as I said, you know, he basically takes the war straight to Nanking. It's when the British forces are outside Nanking that the Chinese come to the table and are serious for the first time. There's been attempts to sort of uh, parlay in the past, but they've really been delaying actions more than anything else. Um, we're really seeing at this stage that they, they know that they have to, to do a deal. Um, and so we get the opening of the, uh, the treaty ports. <clears throat> uh, we get a huge uh, indemnity paid by the Chinese towards the British. And we get basically the opening up of trade. Um, as I say, the treaty ports are, are, are key key elements of this. In China, it's called the first of the uh, unequal treaties. Um, and, and justifiably so, to some extent. But really, uh, you know, the Chinese had rather brought it on themselves by this stage. Um, they, they could have got out sooner on much better terms. Um, I mean, they pay a, um, an indemnity of, of $21 million. Um, the Hong trading monopoly is stopped so that now the British and other Europeans, for that matter, and the Americans can trade freely in any of the treaty ports. Uh, seven treaty ports, I believe. Was it five? I think it's five. Five treaty ports at this stage. Um, so... It's really, in a sense, the British have got everything they wanted. Um, and the fact that opium isn't really mentioned in the, in the treaty at all, or you could say it wasn't politic to do so. But also, in a sense, I think it justifies the fact that this was far more than just about opium or the opium trade. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Gough obviously gets a, a lot of praise as to the others involved, Pottinger, um, Rear Admiral Parker. Um, so it, it's something that does him an awful lot of good. 
Now, before we move on, Chris, just a quick yeah. question. Did Goff achieve all of this just with those three to 5,000 men you mentioned earlier, or were there big reinforcements sent over, or he did everything with such a small force? Largely, he did everything with such a small force. There are, sm you know, there are small detachments that come in to support. And one other force that I, I, I must mention, which, which he obviously has a use of, is that often sailors from the ships are formed into a sort of a, a makeshift naval brigade, sometimes as many as a thousand strong. Um, and so he gets an extra, you know, sort of thousand troops in inverted commas in that sense. Um, and there were times actually when the nav this naval detachment uh, actually proved very useful. Um, I think, I can't remember the exact details, but off the top of my head, there's one occasion where one of the officers remarks that, uh, you know, they, they, they handled themselves as well as uh, experienced British infantry would. Um, there are some really useful moments from the Naval Brigade, which, which proved very helpful. But we are talking at all, on all occasions of a force that it numerically is greatly outnumbered, but it's technologi technologically so far advanced that the numbers don't matter. Um, and you have this constant use of naval firepower uh, you know, even so if they're the following the rivers with the navy alongside yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if you know, even if the big battleships can't get up there, the steamers can. Some of the frigates can. Um, you know, you, you bring a, 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 a frigate with just the broadside of a frigate into play, you've suddenly got some really serious firepower there. Um, and Goff does have his own artillery as well. I think, I believe he has a, a troop of, of, of mountain guns, which are very useful. You know that. Mounting guns is, is, is as much a generic term for guns that can be moved quickly and easily, be taken apart and reassembled and dragged here, there and everywhere. Um, lighter artillery pieces in general, not always. So, yeah, so, yeah it, it, it's a, and this is one of the key things to understand. It, he really, really effectively uses firepower. Um, something he's criticised for in the Anglo sequels, not using firepower. But here he really does. Um, so he sowed, uh, you know, foresight in that sense, and also no, no real ring rust. You'd have thought after so many years out of the game, he might have been very rusty and made a lot of bad decisions. Exactly. Very good point. You know, um, there isn't any sense of that. I suppose that's, in one sense, the man who was born to this life. You know, this has been his life from his, his earliest days, almost, that uh, he's been, you know, groomed to be destined to be a soldier. Um, I suppose in many senses as well, there's an eagerness to get back into action. And when we don't want, you know, let's be clear when we say that, we're not talking about any sort of bloodlust or anything like that. We're talking about the fact that this is a professional soldier. And like any professional, he wants to do his profession. He wants to do his job. Uh, he, you know, and he wants to test himself. Um, and for the professional soldier, I'm sorry to say it, war is the ultimate test. Um, you know, that's not saying it's anything to be desired or, or glorified, but it is because that's their job. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Goff has tested himself, um, yes, against a weakened enemy. But how many times has, has that, you know, uh, has that gone awry during uh, military history? Um, <laughs> you know, so it... Uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for China, and he gets a lot of credit for China. Um, one of the things that 
was slightly disappointing to Gough during the campaign is that shortly after his arrival there, um, the commander-in-chief of the Madras army uh, dies quite suddenly. And Gough is basically told, um, the job's yours. Uh, you know, you can be commander-in-chief of the Madras army. But obviously, we won't appoint you whilst you're out in China, because that wouldn't be, be right. Well, by the time the conflict's changed, there's been a change of leadership in, in India, the Governor General. There's also been a change of mindset in London, and they're starting to want to go back more towards commander-in-chiefs who are also politically minded as well. So that could be both political and military in their outlook. Goff doesn't really fit the bill for that. So despite having been promised, in effect, uh, the job of commander-in-chief of the Madras Army, he doesn't get it. There's a sense in which Goff is really isn't that bothered. <laughs> um, he would have, at this point, this is something that's important to understand, you read it through his correspondence, he would have been happy to go home. He, after China, he would have been happy to leave India and go home. He'd done his bit. He'd done his bit. Um, you know, he's in his early 60s. He would have been happy to go home. Again, his wife's health is a factor in this. Um, he, he has this interview with Lord Ellenborough, uh, the Governor General, where Gough doesn't know what the meeting's about. He doesn't know what he's going to be offered of anything. He's, I think he's half expecting it will be said, well, awfully sorry, but, you know, you know, there's nothing for you here, go home. Instead, um, he's offered the appointment of Commander-in-Chief of the Bengal Army, which also brings with it Commander-in-Chief India. And so, and, you know, the big job, really, in, in that sense. Um, and he's offered it. He doesn't think he can turn it down. But strangely enough, there is an element of him that I think was prepared to stroke almost wanting to turn it down but he felt he couldn't and part of the thing as well is that I think there's a, a, if I remember correctly there's a letter at some point from Her Majesty Goff is a devoted servant of the crown um, you know almost to the point of if the Queen had told him to jump off a cliff he would have done you know he's, he's got that sort of uh, idea of service and devotion both to the, to the army and to the crown that despite what his own personal thoughts and feelings might have been, he would have seen this as something that he had to do. Thanks to Chris for another wonderful instalment in the life of Sir Hugh Goff. Please subscribe as next week we're diving into Goff's performance during the first Anglo-Sikh War, and then the following week we'll examine the second Anglo-Sikh War. As you can see, we're really going deep into his life and service. Until then, ladies and gents, please take care, and we will speak soon.